From the High Center Studios of Messiah College on the neighborhood sandlot of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to episode 20 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast. Drew, Spring is in the air, although today it's actually a little bit cold and wet in central Pennsylvania. But with spring in the air, that means it is time for our annual baseball episode. So, Drew, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you how your cards are looking for this year. That's the St. Louis Cardinals, by the way. Well, um... As much as it pains me to say it, I think we're going to be looking up at the Cubs for at least the next few years. We've got, we've got, a, I mean, we've got a good but aging core of players, and the Cubs, unfortunately, they're really good players. Are also quite young, uh, and they have the money to keep them. So, by the way, Drew, I don't think you have ever told us how you became a Cardinals fan. After all, um, I know you as a kid who was raised in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Well, you know, I'm. I, My last name, Hermeling. The Hermelings, uh, like many 19th century German immigrants, moved to the greater St. Louis area as soon as they came to America. And specifically, my family moved to Alton, Illinois, which is right across the Mississippi River. So uh, my father and his three brothers grew up mostly in New Martinsville, West Virginia, however, since my grandpa had a job at the aluminum mill there along the Ohio River. But uh, St. Louis was always the home base for my family, and they never let go of their devotion to the Cardinals. And in fact, actually now, both my Grammy and Grandpa are buried in St. Louis. And much of my family, including my dad, live either in in the city or in southern Illinois. So moving around a lot as a kid, the Cardinals in St. Louis has always served as as a home city for me. Sort of an anchor, right? Exactly. Exactly. So, so, you know, I'm really excited about this season. I'm I'm especially excited about the addition of Dexter Fowler, who we picked up from those dreaded Cubs uh, in the offseason. And he's already emerging as a real clubhouse leader. And and a lot of the younger players seem to be reacting to him well, uh, reacting to his leadership. So how about your Mets? Well, like it's been the last couple of years, Drew, pitching, pitching, pitching. You know, if we can keep Syndergaard, DeGrom, you know, Harvey's coming off of two really bad injuries. Mats, if those guys can stay healthy, you know, we can, I think we'll be in good shape. But you guys are definitely going to miss big, sexy Bartolo Colon this year, yeah? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, he, he really's come through for us, especially with the injuries the last couple of years. Um, I think he won 15 games last year. That's a lot of wins to miss. Now, for those of you who don't know, we lost Colon to the Braves. I mean, the guy is amazing. I mean, if you've ever seen him pitch, you know, he is he is just a big guy. I think it's fair to say he's pretty overweight, uh, 43 years old. You know, what pitcher signs a $12.5 million one-year deal with the Braves at the age of 43? The guy is like an ageless wonder. I think it's that first home run he hit last season. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, though, about Bartolo. He debuted for Cleveland on April 4th, 1997. And that was actually the first day that Atlanta's Turner Field was open. Wow. So he is now pitching for Atlanta and will be pitching at the brand new Sun Trust Park since this is the first year the Braves are going to be playing there. So he has literally proven himself more durable than a baseball stadium. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. So the Dominican Republic should be proud. Yeah, it's interesting that you just mentioned the Dominican Republic, Drew, because our guest today, historian Adrian Burgos Jr., is the editor-in-chief of an amazing digital project, a digital magazine called La Vida Baseball. It's devoted entirely to the history of Latino baseball, actually the presence present of Latino baseball as well. Yeah, I mean, we're, I, and I think it's a great time for us to really dig into the subject of race and ethnicity in American baseball. And I really can't think of a better guest. Not only is Adrian one of the preeminent historians of the rich Latino heritage of America's pastime, but he is spearheading some great work on making that heritage more accessible for the public. Well, before we get to Adrian, Drew, let's take care of some business. Yeah, absolutely. Got to pay them bills. As always, today's episode is brought to you in part through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler. We are also sponsored by Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. 
If you'd like to join our cloud of supporters, you too can help keep this project going simply by heading over to thewaveimprovement.com and clicking support. Whether you want to donate at one of our pledge tiers or you'd simply like to make a flat donation, every little bit helps. And if you aren't in a place to make a financial donation, you can always support our efforts by reviewing us on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcatcher you prefer, and by simply sharing your favorite episodes on social media. Yeah, Drew, I say this every week, but I'm just overwhelmed uh, with gratitude, and I'm very encouraged, especially in this day and age, that so many people are willing to support our work and that see the importance of good history. Like I always say, we always need good history, good American history but we need it especially in times of great political and social change. So uh, it's it's great to, to go on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, see pictures of all of those uh, Way of Improvement Leads Home mugs. By the way, Drew, I finally got my mug. I went into my uh, mailbox in the history department at Messiah, and there it was. So So thank you. So I have to ask, how much better does the coffee taste in your new mug? Oh, it tastes much, much, much better. And you yeah. too can enjoy that rich coffee flavor if you (laughs) donate um we're really looking forward to our interview today with adrian burgos but first what do you have to share with us today john i will always remember harry the horse standing i never saw him play catcher for the old new york giants but he could tell some really good tales about what it was like to sit behind home plate in the polo grounds and catch Carl Hubble's screwball. Harry Danning was a four-time National League All-Star between 1938 and 1941. His nickname came from a character in a short story written by the famed newspaper man and sports writer Damon Runyon. Harry the Horse spent his entire career with the Giants. He played for the 1933 team that beat the Washington Senators in the World Series, and he caught for the two pennant-winning Giants teams in 1936 and 1937 that went on to lose the World Series to the Yankees. He had a good career. He posted a 985 lifetime fielding percentage. Not bad for a guy who had to catch so many screwballs. His career 285 batting average ties him with Yogi Berra, for the 18th highest batting average among Major League Baseball catchers. In 1958, and then again in 1960, Harry even received a vote for the Hall of Fame. I've only spent a few hours with Harry Danning. Back in 2002, I was teaching history at Valparaiso University in Indiana. One day, my friend history department colleague and fellow Jersey boy, Alan Bloom, approached me with a big smile on his face. Hey, Fia, how would you like to interview a guy who caught Carl Hubble? He's still alive, I asked. Alan laughed and said, yeah, he lives right here in Valparaiso. Alan was right. Danning was in his early 90s and living in Valpo. His family had asked Alan if he might be willing to conduct an oral history interview with him. Alan Bloom was the perfect guy to interview Danning. He was a baseball fan, a product of the New York metropolitan area, and perhaps more importantly, was Jewish. As for me, I was just honored to tag along and ask a few questions. We sat in a room with Harry for a couple of hours and asked him questions. The room was filled with memorabilia and pictures from his years with the Giants. He told a story after story of his career playing alongside Hubble, Mel Ott, and Travis Jackson, all Giants greats. Of course, we also wanted to know what it was like being a Jew playing baseball in the 1930s. Danning's father was born in Warsaw, Poland. His mother in Latvia. They met in Philadelphia and eventually moved to Los Angeles, where Harry was born. Following in the footsteps of his mother, Danning regularly attended synagogue and took his faith seriously. During his career with the Giants, he never played a baseball game on a Jewish holiday. The New York Giants were known for having Jewish players on their roster. 
The owners often signed them in order to bring the large New York City Jewish population to the polo grounds to watch a game. In fact, on September 11, 1941, the Giants started four Jewish players, Sid Gordon and Maury Arnovich in the outfield, Harry Feldman on the mound, and of course, Harry Danning behind the plate. I remember Alan asking Danning something about calling games in Yiddish. Apparently, in one minor league game, Danning's brother Ike, who was also a catcher, decided to speak to his pitcher, a fellow Jew, in Yiddish, rather than using the traditional finger signs. If I recall, Harry did not seem to confirm or deny the story. Before Hank Greenberg and Sandy Koufax, the Polo Grounds was the center of the Jewish baseball world. Imagine what these men would have thought about Team Israel's recent run in the World Baseball Classic. Much of the persecution and discrimination that Danning faced for his Jewish identity came from name-calling from fans and members of the opposing team. Danning referred to those players in the other dugout as bench jockeys. They were quick to shout ethnic slurs whenever Danning came to the plate. He told us about how the other team's players would tell their pitchers to, quote, pitch under his nose, unquote, because, quote, he couldn't see the ball there, unquote. During the course of the interview, Danning was always quick to remind us that Jewish players did not receive the same kind of discrimination that black players would eventually have to suffer through. But there were moments. In 1934, the Giants were playing a spring training game near Key Biscayne, Florida. When they checked into their hotel, the owner realized that Danning and his teammate Phil Weintraub were Jewish, and thus he refused to give them a room. When Giants manager Bill Terry learned about this, he told the owner that he would be taking his business elsewhere unless Danning and Weintraub were given a room. Eventually, the owner relented, and the two Jewish ballplayers were allowed to stay in the hotel. My afternoon with Harry Danning was a memorable one. I left Valparaiso shortly after we interviewed him and would later learn from Allen and the New York Times obituary section that Danning had passed away at the age of 93, about two years after the interview. But I will also remember this day for the opportunity to share my love of New York baseball with Alan Bloom. In 2013, while serving as chair of the Valparaiso University History Department, Alan passed away leaving a spouse and three young children. He was an inspiring college teacher and scholar of homelessness, a gym rat, a community member, an activist, a mentor, and a friend to many of us. Rest in peace, Alan. This episode of the podcast is dedicated to you, and I hope you are able to continue that interview with Harry the Horse. Adrian Burgos Jr. is a professor of history at the University of Illinois, specializing in U.S. Latino history, sports history, and urban history. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Michigan and a B.A. from Vassar College. He is the author of Cuban Star, How One Negro League Owner Changed the Face of Baseball, and Playing America's Game, Baseball Latinos and the Color Line, which won the Latina Latino Book Award from the Latin American Studies Association and was a Seymour Medal finalist from the Society of American Baseball Research. His scholarly writings have appeared in the Journal of American History, the Journal of Ethnic History, Social Context, among others. 
He has been a contributor to SportingNews.com and has written for MLB.com and other electronic and print outlets. The subject of a 2016 Big Ten Network documentary, Playing America's Game, he has appeared on ESPN, MLB Network, and NPR, as well as national and local programs discussing Latinos, baseball, and race. We are very excited today for our baseball episode uh, to have Adrian Burgos as our guest. Adrian is the editor of the digital magazine La Vida Baseball. Uh, we talked a little bit about him in our intro. Um, Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So tell me a little bit about La Vida Baseball. How did you, how did you get this, uh, this initiative going, this magazine going? Um, what is the motivation behind it? What are you trying to accomplish here? Uh, just give us some background because I'm guessing most of our listeners have, uh, are unfamiliar with this. I know we have some diehard baseball fans who probably are who listen, but most of our listeners are unfamiliar. So tell us a little bit about La Vida Baseball. La Vida Baseball is a digital magazine that it's in partnership with the Baseball Hall of Fame. And this is a great moment to launch this magazine, partly because uh, for those who are baseball fans are quite aware, Yvonne Rodriguez just got elected to Baseball Hall of Fame. Right. A couple of years ago was Pedro Martinez. You actually have a number of Latinos who are about to go in. And, you know, Vlad Guerrero just barely missed. And you had Robbie Alomar go in a few years back, but Mariano Rivera is waiting in queue. Big Boppy just retired. <laughs> and one of the things that motivates us to, to kind of launch now is that even though Latinos have been playing in the major leagues over 100 years, well over 100 years, most people are really unaware of their stories, of what is the story behind their presence, their history, and just the passion for baseball. And one of the reasons for that, and this is where I put my uh, professor cap back on and say is a lot has been lost in translation. And it's not just language, but cultural translation. So, you know, I've written about Jose Bautista's bat flipping and how, you know, moments of sheer joy and energy and excitement are not about showing up the other team, but about the celebration of we're playing a game. This is such a, an amazing moment. We share it with the fans. We, we allow ourselves to emote with the fans. And yes, I personalize it because I grew up a baseball fan. I learned my passion for baseball from my grandmothers who were baseball fans. And let me give you a little vignette about how big baseball was in our family. Yeah, please do. After I sent in the, the galleys back to the University of California Press, for Playing America's Game, my first book, I drove down to Georgia to visit and celebrate with my parents. One of my uncles comes up from Florida, and I, being a big historian, I'm like, his, we, his name is uh, Jose Antonio, uh, but we call him Tonio. And I said, Tonio, did you know there was a player in the Negro Leagues and who played in the Puerto Rican League who was named Jose Antonio Bungos? And he says, yeah, your grandmother named me after him. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and I had no idea. Yeah, and, yeah. and really, it's like that was my grandmother's passion that she would name her youngest of nine kids, you know, her last one born after one of her favorite baseball players. You know, to me, yeah. that's just like so rich about the passion that many Latinos share across borders. And we even saw that most recently in the World Baseball Classic that it crosses generation, it builds community, and it also is, and again, historian cap back on, Latinos are the first group of migrants and immigrants who came to the United States who already had baseball. Puerto Ricans, wow. Cubans, Dominicans, those from yeah. all parts of Mexico, from northern coast of Colombia, from Venezuela, they had already been playing baseball when they came to the United States. It's not America's game it's plural america's game and that's how we see it it's a shared passion with those who follow baseball in the united states Wonderful. and that's what we're trying to capture and live you the baseball yeah and i can sense your passion for this too this is great tell me real quickly just a follow-up uh you are an academic historian right you have a phd uh you teach at a major research university um 
talk, can you talk maybe a little bit about that kind of, you know, even as you were just answering that question, you know, putting your historian's hat on, putting your baseball hat on, how do you, how do you, um, navigate, uh, you know, I mean, this is a very extensive, um, uh, digital project you have going here, this magazine. Um, but yet I'm sure you have a, you know, you teach classes and you do research and so forth. Talk about that. Um, talk about how you navigate those two things. For me, what La Vida Baseball allows me to do as a scholar, as a professor, is to really do public engagement in a yeah. 21st century kind of way. I love that. You know, yeah. It's bringing the archive to life. One of the ventures that we do with the Baseball Hall of Fame is literally going into the archives and pulling out stories out of the artifacts that they have. The reality is most of the people who are baseball fans will not physically visit the Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. So La Vida Baseball allows you to engage Pedro Martinez's jersey, Big Boppy's gloves from when he hit his 500th home run and he kind of pointed to the sky and it was in memory of his mother. Like these stories that fans kind of saw the moment, but they don't know the backdrop to the story. Yeah. And that's what La Vida allows me to do as a historian. And you know, the sheer size of the audience is profound. You know, I, I know, you know, I celebrated with, with friends and family when the first run of my first book sold out and, you know, California Press is printing a second run. It's like, wow, it's a big deal for an academic professor to have a nice run sell out. Yeah. And then a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece uh, as a contributor to the Sporting News on uh, Kurt Schilling and something he had stated, and it had like 60,000 page views in the span of a month. And it's like, okay, that's humbling. Right, right. <laughs> and it also reminded me, you know, that as scholars, public engagement is the space where we can transform the ideas that have been honed in the classroom, in conversation with other scholars, and bring them to the public. And this is what drives La Vida Baseball. We have a historically sensi historical sensibility to what we do, and we frame it through a Latino perspective which is what often has been missing, and as I noted before, has been lost in translation so many times. The, the sports writing press in the United States, when you look at it, particularly with the baseball press, has not been profoundly changed from even the moment when Jackie Robinson yeah. integrated baseball. And what we saw for many years and in, into the more recent decades was Latino players even Big Boppy talked about this, and I wrote about this in Playing America's Game, how when he's interviewed by a member of the English language press, he hears the question, he translates it to Spanish in his mind. He forms an answer in his mind in Spanish. He translates it into English, and then he begins to answer it wow. verbally to the sports writer. And what we have done in La Vida Baseball, both myself the, um, as the editor-in-chief my uh, colleague, Clemson Smith-Muniz, as the executive editor, our director of social media, Henry Pacheco. When we approach the ball player, be it a Yadier Molina or Sergio Romo, and we're like, in English or in Espanol, whichever way will allow you to, to talk to us. Not allow. You have the space to talk to us however you feel most eloquent. We'll translate it because that's our job is to provide the public with your words and ideas. Our job is not to give a cultural assessment of how you speak in English. Our job is to inform the public of what is going through your mind and how you feel as journalists, as scholars. And so, you know, that is the space. What's also interesting is that we're primarily, we are an English language media source for a U.S. Latino audience and everyone else. And what I mean by that is the Pew Research Foundation and other marketing and media tracking services have established that the majority of the U.S. Latino population consumes their media in English, their news in English, their sports in English, not Spanish. Wow. Yeah. And too often the approach of the U.S media to the Latino audience was strictly Spanish. When ESPN launched ESPN Deportes, they were more international facing. That is, they were speaking to those Latinos outside of the U.S. 
more so than to those of us like myself who was in the U.S. And so what we have sought to do in La Vida Baseball is to provide the players and the community members, baseball executives, as well as families and friends of the ball players, the space to talk to us in whichever language they feel comfortable, but then translate and provide that information, that perspective in English to the audience. And so when I interviewed Yadier Molina down in Jupiter during spring training, he spoke to me in Spanish. So we translated it to English. You still hear the Spanish sound. For those who are Spanish conversant, they can hear Yadi speak. And you'll see the subtitles. And Yadi was so pleased to be able to just sit there and share what he has to say. What I loved about that interview, as I'm looking at Yadi, is that he was literally leaning in, like almost in a catcher stance, on a chair looking <laughs> at me. Yeah. You know, I'm like, he is into this. This is what yeah. I want. Yeah. Baseball fans, regardless of whether they're Latino or not, they want to know what's going on through Carlos Martinez's head when he's on the mound. What's his approach? But we also want the fans to know beyond the playing field. Like one of the things we like to do is call five cuts and we ask the ball players five questions. And it's about what's going on on the diamond and what goes on beyond the playing field. So where's your place, place to find Latino food you know, when you're not in St. Louis, when you're on the road? What's your favorite music? Who's the best singer on your team? <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's the baseball life. That's That's La Vida baseball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tell us a little bit, Adrian, about the connection uh, between um, uh, La Vida and the Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. Uh, You know, you've mentioned that you have this relationship with them. Um, I'm assuming the archives you mentioned may be part of their archival collections. What's the relationship like there? Because you know, here on the East Coast, some of our some of our listeners may have been to the to the to the Hall of Fame and might be interested in that connection. Yes, definitely. You know, the Baseball Hall of Fame is a great partner. I like to call it it's baseball's Valhalla. It's where you can go through history. And yet one of the really rare things and so few of those who visit Cooperstown get to go into the vault and see and hold the artifacts. And so part of the partnership we formed allows us to tell digital stories where we take you into the vault and we pull out a jersey of a Johan or a scouting report of a Johan Santana, a jersey of Felix Hernandez's perfect game, and tell stories and have hold have fellow players tell that story about what that moment meant to them as a Venezuelan, as a Seattle Mariner. Similarly, For us, the partnership means a kind of access, not just to the artifacts, but now to the growing contingent of Latino Hall of Famers. Mm. So we had the opportunity to, and I personally had the opportunity to trail Ivan Rodriguez during his Hall of Fame orientation tour. The first time he goes to the hall as someone who has been elected for enshrinement. And we were also able to sit down with Ivan and talk to him about his experience as a Latino, as a ball player, share some words in English and in Spanish about his experience. And we also were able to produce, you know, content that we shared with him right there where Edgar Martinez and a number of other Puerto Ricans like Carlos Correa and Carlos Beltran are basically saying, congratulations, Pudge, for making the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I was watching... You know, I handed my iPad to Ivan Rodriguez and he starts you know, watching this video and he just starts smiling and in a certain moment begins to choke up because this is a digital platform that allows those kinds of moments to happen for them where they can share with one another and then speak to the broader audience about what this means. And so you know, that partnership with the Hall of Fame allows for that to take place. And you know, the Hall of Fame is the gold standard in museums. And what I love about the Hall of Fame partnering with us is that they saw a need to really move into the 21st century about what museums can do to reach a broader audience, to bring their collection into digital life so that a broader American and even Latin American audience can begin to engage their artifacts and learn about these stories. And that is novel. 
that is really cutting edge. Um, it's a real cutting edge understanding of the work of museum. And that the hall's doing that is fantastic. Let's talk a little history here, Adrian. Um, you've written a lot about the ways Latino players have navigated uh, a, a sport that's largely been segregated for much of its much of its history. So, you know, most of our listeners, I think, when they think of diversity in baseball, they'll think about Jackie Robinson or maybe Roberto Clemente. Um, but you've traced in some of your work Latinos in baseball back further than Robinson and Clemente, all the way back to the 19th century. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of that history. One of the things that I love sharing, because it's about the work that we do as historians, right. is how did I come across some of these earlier Latino players that played in the major leagues and played in the minor leagues and the Negro leagues as well? And the first thing is I went back to many of the same sources that other historians had looked at. Sporting Life, Sporting News, New York Clipper. Yeah. Yeah. The difference was I was looking for Latinos. You know, and that yeah. tells us about how we frame our projects and what we are looking for can change what we see. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's one of the places I started was literally going to the familiar, you know, classic baseball history sources. But the other part about that is also changing the framework of analysis. So much of what we understood about the story of race in baseball has been told through this black-white binary. And what's fascinating to me was that it left Latinos in this very interesting location along the color line. And too many had argued, well, if Latinos, and there were over 50 that played in the major leagues before Jackie Robinson, if they got in, they must have been white. Mm -hmm. And that's not really how race operated in baseball. I'll go back to the very first Mexican-American to play in the major leagues. This was Vincent Nava, who was of Mexican ancestry. His mom was born in Durango. His father was also of Mexican birth. But he was born in California. And he made his baseball name playing out, as they called it then, on the Pacific Slope. He was the best catcher at catching hard pitching, which was finally baseball had allowed overhand pitching and he would catch it barehanded and he was the best one at it. (laughs) And so the Providence Grays, when Providence was a major league town, the Providence Grays signed Nava, but they introduced him not as a Mexican catcher. They called him the Spanish catcher (laughs) of the Providence club, which is a clue about how race operated and how it was marketed, that it was better for the Providence Grays to bring in fans to present him as Spanish versus as a Mexican, uh-huh. even though, in fact, he was Mexican. And similarly, there's these other stories. And what Plain America's game really began to delve into is whereas the story of African-Americans in Major League Baseball and organized baseball, for much of the story is a story of the effort for, at outright exclusion. When we look at those from the Spanish-speaking Americas, and so one of the ways we really learn about how race operated in the major leagues, how the color line operated in the major leagues, Mm -hmm. is when we look at the first two Cubans to play in the 20th century in the major leagues, Rafael Armeida and Armando Marsans, who debut on July 4th of all days, 1911, versus the Chicago Cubs. And they're presented to the Cincinnati public as two of the purest bars of Castilian soap. And what's really fascinating about that is they didn't just call them Cuban soap. They went to the regional location of Spain, Castile. So it was very specific about how race and ethnicity operated. In addition to Armando Marsans and Rafael Armeida, what I myself, as a lifelong baseball fan, did not know was that the majority of Latinos who played professionally in the United States before Jackie Robinson, before the color line was broken, played in the Negro Leagues. Mm. That was the, the place where Armando Marsans 
actually played very briefly. But others like Jose Mendez, Martin Diego, and yes, Orestes, Santonino, Arieta, Almas, Minoso. We know him as Mini Minoso. Mini Minoso, that's, yeah. That's where they started because they were black Latinos. And so the majority of Latinos actually started in the Negro Leagues. And a handful got across the color line. But what mattered was that Clark Griffith, as the owner of the Washington Senators, said a Cuban player like Bobby Estelea was not black, he was Cuban, and therefore your eyes are deceiving you. <laughs> Even okay. though Bobby Estelea was a shade darker than Roy Campanella, an African-American. Yeah. And so that is what, you know, for me, really begins to tell us an even more complicated story about race and place. But it's also the presence of Latinos matters in how we understand race and how we understand identity. And that's not just a recent story. My argument is when you look at baseball's history, there's a long story to that. So let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into this this connection between uh, Cuban baseball players or, or uh, Latino baseball and the Negro Leagues. So who was Alex Pompez? I suspect many of our listeners are unfamiliar with him, and so um, it seems pretty important that we kind of get his story if we're going to understand uh, race and ethnicity in baseball. Alex Pompez was one of the most significant Latinos involved in professional baseball. And yes, most people have not heard of him. He was an Afro-Cuban-American, born in Key West, grew up in Tampa, and he actually comes to Harlem at the age of 20 to make his money in the numbers game, which is the illegal lottery. But he parlayed that money into his other passion, which was baseball. And so he had a team called the Cuban Stars. And the Cuban Stars were a team that featured not just Cuban players, but he brought in the first Dominican in 1923. And mind you, the first Dominican to play in the major leagues was Ozzie Virgil, who doesn't appear until 1957. He brought in, Alex Pompez brought the first Puerto Rican in 1928. His name was Mijito Navarro. The first Puerto Rican to play in the major leagues was Idan Bithorn, who would appear in 1942. So decades before... Major League Baseball expanded its horizons in the Caribbean and Latin America. Alex Pompez was already bringing in talent from those areas. But just as importantly, as a U.S. Latino who was bilingual, multicultural, and understanding the Cuban culture, understanding the African-American and the black diaspora culture in such a space as Harlem, who was you know, fluent in English and in Spanish, he was a cultural broker who, when the Negro Leagues began to really fall under the pressure of, of integration and begin to fold, the New York Giants hire Alex Pompez as their scout in Latin America and in the black baseball circuit in the United States. And Alex Pompez does what he had learned and had perfected in the Negro Leagues in the major leagues, working for the Giants. He, starts bringing, he opens up the Dominican pipeline. Juan Marichal, the Alou brothers, Manny Moda were players that he brought out of the Dominican. He reached out and got Orlando Cepeda. He signed Willie McCovey from Alabama. He created a network of former players who were his eyes on the ground as the first spotters. We call them bird dog scouts in baseball parlance. And then Alex would come down and start looking at these guys and you know, many of them would go on to achieve greatness in baseball. But what's fascinating to me is how did I come across Alex Pompez? Well, in doing research for my, my dissertation and then playing America's Game, I kept coming across his name in books on black baseball, that is the Negro Leagues, somewhat in books about Major League Baseball and Latinos, but also about numbers in Harlem. And it hit me. This is all the same guy. He's being told like in this fragmented story. And ultimately, that is the reason why I wrote Cuban Star, how one Negro League owner changed the face of baseball. Because Alex Pompez allows us to dig into the story of not just the presence of Latinos in baseball, but what does it mean to be black and brown? 
to be black and Latino in America because he was such a vital part of Harlem. And yet, because of how our understandings of race, particularly as we look at in retrospect, he got lost in how many people thought about the history of the Negro Leagues, the place of Harlem. But when you go to the New York age of the 1920s and 30s, Alex Pompez is constantly, not just in the sports pages, but in the front pages, in, in the life section, in all parts of the New York age, because he was part of Harlem. He was a vital kind of figure in how Harlem was this diasporic space of blackness. Fascinating stuff. So let's 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 move forward to the present. We're just a couple weeks removed from the uh, from the World Baseball Classic, and I, and this has been, you know, as just a pure fan, I think uh, a great success for what is a kind of fledgling tournament. Um, but it, you know, from from a, specifically from kind of a, a Latino perspective, it kind of ended on a on a bit of a sour note. And so, um, for those who didn't catch the story, can you explain that? Um, explain what the World Baseball Classic meant to, to Puerto Rico specifically, but then also recount the, the, the kind of uh, uh, dispute, I guess, that uh, took place between uh, both the American players, Ian Kinsler and Adam Jones, and then um, you know, Puerto Rican star uh, Yadier Molina, and, and, and maybe go into how that exposed some of the racial and ethnic t- tensions that are still present in the game. The World Baseball Classic... I think was able to gain the most traction than ever before as a tournament this year because many fans in the United States were able to see the passion that the Puerto Rican, the Dominican, the Venezuelan, the Colombian, and in a different uh, location in Tokyo and in, in Korea to see the passion that the Japanese and Cubans have for baseball. And that there is, it's, there is more than one way to play baseball the right way. And this is what the history of baseball has long been. And the World Baseball Classic was the showcase for this more global version of baseball. And that it doesn't, it's not just the Major League Baseball way. And I noted before that you know, Latinos are the first group, unlike the Polish immigrants, unlike the Italian immigrants, unlike the Eastern European immigrants who came to the United States in the early 20th century, who learned baseball and became American partly through how they learned baseball, became a Ted Klazuski, became a Joe DiMaggio. Latinos came with baseball. Cubans have been playing baseball since the 1860s. Puerto Ricans have been playing since the 1890s. Dominicans have been playing since the late 1880s. This is not a recent learning experience. Baseball has been planted and cultivated on the soil of these countries and in, the, in multiple generations. And so the World Baseball Classic is a forum where the Puerto Rican team and the Dominican team and all these other teams are seeking to show their excellence on the field, but also their love and passion for baseball. And the Puerto Rican team went through the first two rounds and into the finals uh, without a loss, uh, winning seven games. And then they faced that juggernaut of the U.S. team. And the funny thing about this is, as a number of Puerto Rican fans noted, it just so happened that the U.S. team had the better Puerto Rican pitcher for the final than the Puerto Rican team. Because it was actually, and a friend of mine coined this term, it was two Diasporicans who were pitching. <laughs> I like that. And so you got, you got Marcus Stroman, whose father's African-American, and his mother is Puerto Rican, born on the island and migrated to New York, pitching against Seth Lugo, who, who, who refers to himself as a Puerto Rican because one of his grandparents was from Puerto Rico and born on the island who migrated stateside. And so you had two Puerto Ricans facing off against each other in the final. And Stroman was unbelievable. He was unhittable for the first six innings. And then we got one hit and he was able to come off the field. But even still. But what was also the backdrop to that scene were two stories. One was at the very beginning of the World Baseball Classic, Yadier Molina, who was really and is really the spirit and the heart of the Puerto Rican team. He's the leader. 
had spoken with the governor of Puerto Rico and said, if we make the finals, I want you guys to fly us back so we can share this with our Puerto Rican fans. Puerto Rico economy is in shambles. It, it is a reminder of the impact of over 100 years of U.S. control, colonialism over the island. And baseball provided for about a month's time. And this was amazing. Like the governor even came out and said this. Crime on the, on the, on the, throughout the World Baseball Classic, crime dropped dramatically in Puerto Rico. When the Puerto Rican games were on, 70% of the TVs that were on during the World Baseball Classic final between the U.S. and Puerto Rico were watching that game. Seven out of every 10 television were tuning into that game. And that, that there were no murders during the finals. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, Puerto Rico, on the one hand, was, has been suffering from a bad economy and, and a lot of the turmoil around you know, the outward migration that has dramatically affected the, the, the number of doctors on the island, the professional class as they migrate to stateside communities. And so Molina saw this as a moment to rally the people together. And prior to the finale between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, Ian Kinzer gave an interview to the New York Times where he stated, and I'm paraphrasing here, that fans can watch tonight's game and really appreciate how we play the game. We we play it in a way that's different, <clears throat> better than how the Puerto Ricans play. And he actually then specifies, you know, we play it differently than Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. And, you know, they allow their emotions to really control them. And we just show our emotions differently. Right. And, you know, so a number of Latinos, you know, were rankled by that comment because, you know, Kinsler was making a cultural statement, a critique of what for many fans was what had made the World Baseball Classic so much fun that players and fans were emoting throughout the joy and passion for baseball. And then at the end of the game, Adam Jones was asked in front of the 50,000 fans who are in, in a Dodger Stadium, you know, what motivated you? What pulled you guys together, you know, to really, you know, win this championship for the first time? The U.S. actually won the World Baseball Classic. And Jones refers to how the Puerto Rican team had already scheduled a parade for winning and that they had already uh, printed up T-shirts. By the way, the U.S. had already done that as well. Um, you know, and he said, you know, they were so, you know, confident that the Puerto Ricans were so confident that they did all this ahead of time. And that really upset Yadier Molina. Mm -hmm. And it upset me as well because – my issue was not that he took motivation from that. That's fine. Many players take, you know, that's chalkboard material. Right. That's locker room material to motivate. But to put it in front of the 50,000 fans when the Puerto Rican team had stayed on the field, congratulated the U.S. team, had tipped their caps, they're right there. And they did, you know, what was the, a great showing of sportsmanship. And then Adam Jones gives this framing of why the Puerto Ricans were going back to Puerto Rico to celebrate. You know, Yadier had set that up way before. And, you know, so Molina was really upset because from Yadier Molina, this is yet another example of how the culture of baseball and of Latinos is turned into something that is a, to be critiqued, criticized, and put down. And Molina was, you know, in his tweets, in his interviews afterwards back on the island, was adamant that Jones ought to apologize to the Puerto Rican people for such a public outing and almost shaming of what they had organized for celebrating 
what for these three and a half people million who live on the island and the four million Puerto Ricans who live off of the island, you know, was a great moment. You know, it, it really showed these very nationalistic lines being drawn. And to me, what's fascinating about that as a historian, as a historian of Latinos, was so much was being made in social media circles. Why does Puerto Rico even have a team? They belong to the United States. You know, why should they have their own place in the finals? And I think the comments of Kinsler and Jones reminded many Puerto Ricans that although you are U.S. citizens, not everyone sees you as fellow Americans. Yeah, this, I mean, again, some of these racial and ethnic tensions are, are definitely still there. Let's end, our time's just about up. Let's end, Adrian, on a much lighter note. Uh, the season's about to get underway. What are you looking forward to about this season? What are your hopes as a fan of America's uh, pastime? Um, what, what are you looking for this year? Maybe who's your favorite well, team? I was born in the Bronx on the Grand Concourse right down from Yankee Stadium. And I grew up when my family moved to Florida. We were in Fort Lauderdale. I'm a hard, diehard Yankee fan. Oh, no. Um, and yes. <laughs> and yes, recently we have been dying really hard. <laughs> Our producer, Josh, is, is, is cheering behind the screen. I'm saying, oh, no, because I'm a Mets fan. And, uh, sure. and, and Drew, Drew's got a sort of blank look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, you know, I, I learned how to root for baseball from my grandmother's. And one of them, my grandma Mercedes, I remember asking her when I was in college, are you a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? Uh-huh. And she told me, well, I'm a Yankees fan, but I never root against the Mets. Is that Because right? I'm a New Yorker. Okay. She's like, I'm a New Yorker. And then she says, and I also root for which, if, he, if neither of those two teams are playing, I root for the team that has the most Latinos. Is that right? That's great. And that's kind of how I, I follow the game. I look for Latino storylines and I follow them. And let me give you one of those storylines. Sure. Because this guy is the, the most, to me, he really embodies what we talk about in La Vida Baseball. And he was so close to not making it as a major leaguer and kind of becoming a journeyman who never fulfilled his promise. But he is slated to get his 3,000th hit this year. He will be, if he has the same season he has last year, he will end the year as the all-time leader in hits for Latinos. Adrian, Adrian Beltre. Yeah. Watch yeah. him. His fielding, his hitting, his love of the game, his humor. He embodies La Vida Baseball. This man is a guy who hit a home run on a pitch that was probably six inches off the ground. He's a man who makes these amazing plays in the field. And he's the guy who brings so many players together. He's, he's a joy to watch. And he's the kind of guy I root for because he, he embodies that passion for baseball. Yeah, you have a, you have a story on Levita baseball already on, on how good Latin players are at hitting the ball out outside of the strike zone, right? Am I remembering that yes. correctly? Yes. I mean, because Vlad bad Guerrero ball was hitters. Great. Yeah, Vlad Guerrero was a great bad ball hitter. I, and you know who was another, who's a current great bad ball hitter is Jose Atulde. Oh, yeah. The second baseman for the Houston Astros. Yeah. yeah. And for me, part of what's made, you know, venturing into La Vida Baseball, it, it allows me to go kind of as a historian into the living archive. That is, instead of just going into and interacting with artifacts and paper, I'm talking to a Jose Altulve. I'm talking with a Carlos Correa. I'm sitting across from Carlos Martinez and talking to them about their experiences, about their passion for the game, for the community, what they do beyond the playing field in terms of giving back. And, you know, it brings the archive to life that way because, you know, as a historian connecting the present and the past – I'm a historian who very much follows what the great anthropologist Michelle Ralph Cruyot contended. History is a relationship between those of us in the present and the past. And that is really what I share with my students. And that's why history is not ever dead. It's always alive. 
Well, that's a great way, I think, yeah. to end the interview. Adrian, thank you so much. I know you're a busy man, especially with baseball season coming up. Um, we really appreciate you taking some time and talking with us today. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, Drew, this was definitely a great way to kick off the baseball season. What do you think? Definitely. And I'm always happy to talk about Yadier Molina, the heart and soul of the Puerto Rican team. He's been my favorite player, actually, since he hit that ninth inning home run in Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS. Is that right? Who was that against again? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) But... (laughs) But I'm also excited that we tackled what is actually a pretty thorny subject right now. And I mentioned at the top of the episode that I'm excited about the addition of Dexter Fowler to the uh, Cardinals roster. But his reception has been in some ways lukewarm, especially after he spoke up against Trump's Muslim ban. Mm. Uh, and while I don't think you need, a, need to have a personal stake to oppose the ban, it should be noted that Fowler's wife is Iranian. And so uh, yet many fans of the Cardinals responded by telling him to shut up and play ball, with some even saying that because he signed a contract, he is, quote, property of the Cardinals. That's an interesting use of word, isn't it? Absolutely. And if I actually, I I do want to give Fowler the the floor here for a second, because I'm going to quote Fowler's response. He said, quote, for the record, I know this is going to sound absolutely crazy, but athletes are humans and not properties of the teams they work for, end quote. And interestingly, he's channeling the words of another Cardinals outfielder who sued Major League Baseball because of the power baseball teams had over their players, especially in terms of the reserve clause which stated that even after a contract was filled, the team still reserved rights to that player for a full year. So this is, I'm, I'm now speaking about Kurt Flood. Yep. Um, and in reference to the suit, Flood said, quote, I do not feel I am a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes, end quote. And for those who follow baseball history, Flood's lawsuit ultimately failed, but it paved the way for free agency in baseball. So needless to say, I'm a big Fowler fan right now. Yeah, that's a great, those are great points, Drew. There was so much in this interview that I kind of was jotting down notes and so forth. I, I just love what, what he's doing as a public historian. I mean, this is just, I would love to be able to turn the sort of way of improvement leads home blog into something, you know, like that. I mean, and the time that he has to do it, it's just, I'm very jealous of what, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder, why did I become an early American historian? I could be down at spring training talking to uh, baseball players right now. I, I have, on occasion, perused the job listings at uh, stlouiscardinals.com, hoping <laughs> that their their own, you know, the St. Louis Cardinals Stadium Hall of Fame yeah. might have a job opening for a historian yeah. or something like that. When but, I was listening to him talk about the Hall of Fame and how it's such a wonderful place to visit and so forth, you know, there was a, when I was a kid, well, actually, actually, you know, maybe my, my high school years. Um, have you ever heard of this songwriter, Terry Cashman? Um, he, he writes these baseball songs. They're kind of corny. They're like sort of, you know, pretty, pretty simplistic kind of rhyme schemes and so forth. He's the one who wrote that song. Um, we're talking baseball, Kluzinski, Campanella, you know, uh, Willie, Mickey and the Duke, you know, he would write any, he, he used to write songs for every team. And I used to listen to his um, CD, his best of CD when I was a kid. And he had a song about Cooperstown and the lyrics. I'm going to actually try to sing it. I don't sing well, but the lyric that kept going through my head as Adrian was talking was, I'm going to the place where baseball lives. Ruth and Cobb and Joe DiMaggio. Sunny days and Willie Mays. You'll be glad you took the trip. To Cooperstown, the town where baseball lives. And, you know, but all his songs were largely about kind of white players. You know, he never, he never mentioned sort of the Latino players. And if you listen to, to um, Adrian in the interview, right, I mean, Manny Moda, Minnie Minosa, you know, and all of these other um, uh, Juan, Mar- Juan Marichal, you know, all of these kind of Latino players that, some, that still have not found their way fully into the narrative of of baseball in america right and, and it's so funny i mean i uh, adrian makes a really good case you can't be a true baseball fan unless you understand the role played by these by these yeah. players because if you're if you're cutting people out of the history then you're not really appreciating the full the full game no no so i think the history of baseball is i think just really kind of 
booming and has the potential to really boom along those lines. And I think uh, La Vida Baseball will, will definitely be at the cutting edge. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our baseball episode. Continue to uh, download uh, the podcast. Please review us. Write a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting uh, site. It's been great to have you with us. And remember, may your way of improvement always lead home. And this spring, may it lead to the ballpark as well. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the High Center on campus at Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Adrian Burgos Jr. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermling, and your host, as always, is John Fia. And this episode is dedicated to former Valparaiso University professor Alan Bloom. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.